You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to open your Bibles and to turn in them to Genesis chapter 17. This is a beautiful passage. This is a profound passage. We read here about the Lord confirming His covenant with Abraham and his descendants, his covenant of love and of grace through the sacrament of circumcision. Let's read that together. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I'll give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh, will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now we'll turn to the New Testament. We'll go to Matthew chapter 19, the verses 13 through 15. This is a short reading. Again, however, it is a profound reading. As we learn here what the Lord Jesus thinks about the little children. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 27. Question and answer 74, the Heidelberg Catechism. Should infants, too, be baptized? Yes. Infants, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin, and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as sign of the covenant, They must be grafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, 
in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, baptism, as I'm sure a lot of you feel, is an emotional event. The emotion in here during a baptism is palpable. You can feel it in the air. You experience it yourself. I'm sure it was like that this morning. I know for myself, I've become more emotional during baptisms in church than for any other reason. It's a beautiful thing. Seeing and hearing about God's covenant love and His promises being extended to an infant, to a newborn child, is powerful. It's powerfully emotional. Baptism is an emotional event. It's also an emotional subject for many Christians. The lines of Christendom are firmly drawn between two different stances on baptism. And it all is around the question of who do we baptize? Who should be baptized? Credo Baptists believe that only adults should be baptized. Only those who can say knowingly, I believe in the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, what Jesus Christ has done for me. We, Pado-Baptists, believe that both adults who come to faith and profess their faith and their children ought to be baptized. Well, this afternoon, as we take our text from question answer 74 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which gets right to the issue, should infants too be baptized, we need to shed some light on this emotional subject. Now, I don't want to drain all the emotion out of it. That wouldn't be fitting, because it is an emotional thing. It's a powerful testimony, and it rightly stirs the soul when you witness it. But at the same time, I don't want to fan disdain and dislike for those who hold a credo-baptist position. Also, I'm I'm neither going to be giving a, a thorough critique of their position, nor a thorough defense of ours. But rather, we'll be looking at one crucial point, and that is the question, who belongs? Who belongs? And in doing so, we'll try to to communicate something of the power and the beauty of this sacrament of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's all about who belongs. So who does belong? Well, the little ones to God belong. The little ones, babies, infants, belong to God. We'll see two points. First, that Jesus says so. And then that the Bible says so. So first, the Lord Jesus says that the little ones belong to God. There's a lot of difference of opinion in the two camps about what baptism is all about. But if we want to start where there's no dispute, at least not that I've ever heard of or read of, It's that baptism is a rite of initiation into the church. 
baptism shows that the person being baptized becomes a member of the church. One person calls it a visible initiation into the church by means of the outward sign of water. This is totally consistent with the Bible, and no one disagrees about it. The major theologians of the Reformation, they all spoke about baptism as initiation into the the, the church and the covenant. The Belgic Confession says that by baptism we are received into the church of God. One famous reformer, Henry Bullinger, said that to be baptized is to be enrolled, entered, and received into the covenant and family of God. Baptism is a visible display of a person's joining and entering the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And as you'll notice, answer 74 uses the same sort of language. In response to the question, well, should infants too be baptized? It says, yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. And at a bare foundational level, this is as comprehensive as the answer really needs to be. They belong. Infants are a part of the church, and therefore the visible initiation belongs also to them. Now one question you might ask is, why does the Catechism include this question? Everyone knows, history shows, that all the major reformers, the major figures in the Reformation, they took the same position on baptism, and and that position was in favor of infant baptism. And they had come out of a church, the Roman Catholic Church, which agreed with them about who should be baptized, that it should be children. And so you might wonder, why this question? Where's the controversy? Why include it? We understand that there's many Baptist churches all over Canada, all over North America, all over the world. But where is the controversy at the time when the Heidelberg Catechism was written? Well, the controversy was with a group called the Anabaptists. Anabaptists. It means, literally, the re-baptizers. This group came out of the Roman Catholic Church right alongside with the Reformers. In fact, they were closely associated with them at one point. But they felt at on certain issues, the Reformation didn't go far enough, and so they wanted to take it further. That's why they've, they've been called the Radical Reformation. And one of the so-called radical positions that they took was the re-baptizing of adults. Essential to the view of the Anabaptists is the understanding that Infants don't belong in the church. Infants don't belong in the new covenant and congregation of Jesus Christ. It's not that the Anabaptists don't like children, or that they think that God is is predisposed to, to dislike them, but it has to do with what their understanding of church is all about. According to them, the New Testament church is a regenerate church. It's it's a church full of members who have been regenerated by the Spirit, and that regeneration shows itself in a credible profession of faith, 
So a profession from their mouth and fully consciously in their mind and repentance and the outworking obedience to show that profession. That is what they say is the nature of the new covenant and of the new covenant church. Generational inclusion is out. That was part of the old covenant. Regenerational inclusion is in. Those who have been regenerated. And on that point, many Baptists today would agree. They make the same point about baptism and the church. The church of Jesus Christ is only and exclusively made up of those who have made a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's in this connection then that we read those verses from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 19, chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. And if you read, especially from the side of the the paedo-baptist, from our side, if you want to put it that way, then that text comes up a lot. All the reformers discussed that text and said, see, it proves infant baptism. And I've read a lot of that literature, and I had read a lot of that literature before, and I must say that it always sort of confused me. I always wondered, why do they keep talking about this text? The Lord Jesus isn't even talking about baptism. He doesn't mention the word baptism. Why would this be such a powerful text for infant baptism? But my thinking was actually symptomatic of the problem that exists as we, as we sort of discuss with the Baptists. We think that what needs to be there is every time the word baptism occurs... That's where we ought to be looking for our view on infant baptism. But we shouldn't look at just the individual text or just individual words. We need to gain a bigger understanding. We need to look at the bigger picture. And in coming back to this issue, getting ready for this sermon, the issue all of a sudden became so clear. Why is this such a powerful passage for for believers and their children? It's not only because the Lord Jesus blesses the little children. It is wonderful to know that, isn't it? Little children. To know that the Lord Jesus is also your Savior and your Lord. But it's also powerful in understanding what baptism is all about and understanding in what what the, the perspective of our Lord is all about. Because it states clearly one thing, and that right from the lips of our Savior, little children belong. They belong. The kingdom of heaven, he says, belongs to such as these. Now the argument of one well-known Baptist preacher, John MacArthur, you might have heard of him, he is quite well-known. He's a preacher for whom I have a lot of respect, he says that Jesus here is merely using these children as a, as a sort of object lesson for his disciples. Notice that he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven actually belongs to them. He says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Verse 14. Well, is that the case? It certainly doesn't seem so. The Lord Jesus says, let the little children come to me. He says, don't hinder them. 
He says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then he places his hands on them and blesses them. And then he goes on his way. Now, would the Lord Jesus say all that, do all that, just as an object lesson for his disciples? Consider that. It's almost almost like he's just using them as an example. And that blessing and those words don't really mean anything. I prefer to think that the Lord Jesus' words there mean a lot. That they're powerful words. That Jesus accepts and he includes these children and he shows his favor to them. And he shows what is consistent with God's word from beginning to end that little children belong. And that's demonstrated later in the New Testament in the book of Acts when It's not merely individuals that come to faith. We read five times in the book of Acts, but entire households. And it's true that you can't prove the ages of any of the people in those households. But it it demonstrates the principle that believers and their children are included in God's covenant and congregation, and therefore they receive the sign of holy baptism. This is one of the reasons why infant baptism is so powerful. Because in giving this sacrament and applying it to little children, to infants, to babies, God is sending us a powerful message about our children. And that is that they're His children. They belong. They belong to Him. I'm reminded of those beautiful words at the end of the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. They speak of God rejoicing over us, singing over us, and quieting us with His love. And the image, imagery that Zephaniah is using is that of a, of a father holding on to his infant child. A child that's upset. And he is he's soothing it. He's calming it with His love and His favor. He accepts the child. He loves the child. Well, does the Lord not teach us in His Word that He he cares for children and that He includes them in the covenant and in the church? Why is that imagery of Zephaniah so powerful? It's because it's true. God accepts the little children. Our children are God's children. They belong in His church. They belong in His covenant. And they're given the promises secured for them by the Lord Jesus Christ. They haven't done a thing to earn this privilege. They haven't proven themselves to God. They haven't responded in faith. They haven't embraced their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But God's Word teaches us, and the sacrament of baptism teaches us, that regardless of all this, God embraces them. God brings them into the workshop of His Holy Spirit. He brings them into the atmosphere of faith. He brings them into His rich covenant promises and He marks them with the sign and seal that powerfully declares to them, as to all of us who have been marked with baptism, you belong. You belong. That's a powerful testimony of of God's love. 
It's something we do well to reflect on. We belong. We belong in God's promises. God marked us from the beginning of our life. Something we need to tell our kids. You belong. You belong in church. You ought to be singing these songs of praise with us. You ought to be hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. This is where you belong. We ought to be telling that to our teenagers. It wasn't that long ago I was speaking to a group of teenagers, people in their 20s, and I was speaking about baptism and and how that shows that they too belong to God and and the feeling I got that was that these teenagers hadn't heard that very much lately. We so easily get moralistic with our teenagers, don't we? It's all about what you have to do. Obedience is important. It's also important to affirm to them that God is their Father, and they are God's children. And then, of course, we need to bring our children for baptism. Remember that this is a sign and seal of an already present reality. Baptism doesn't save. Withholding a child from baptism doesn't condemn. But baptism ought to be given as soon as is feasible, given the baby's and the mother's health. Because it is such a powerful testimony of God's promise. They belong. They belong to their father. Jesus says so. But Jesus' words and the consistency shown in the household baptisms of the New Testament aren't the only things about God's word that teach us about the relationship between God and our children. These things don't come like a bolt out of the blue sky. All of a sudden, whoa! Our kids belong to God too. No. It's simply consistent with with the picture of God's relationship with his people from the very beginning. Jesus isn't the only one who tells us that our children belong. The Bible says so too. If we want to understand, understand then, we want to understand our God and, and how He relates with His people and how He relates with our children and the big picture of the Bible, then we need to understand His covenant. His covenant. God's covenant with mankind informs the narrative of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. It's all about God's relationship with His people. God reaches out to to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and his family and to Moses and the people of God under him, Israel, and to David as the king of God's people. And He says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. What's that but short form or long form for You belong. You belong to me. And so to go right to the heart of God's covenant, is right to the heart of his relationship with his people, we need to go right to Abraham, because it's with Abraham that we learn so much about God's covenant dealings, and indeed the New Testament teaches us much more about Abraham and about the covenant that God made. God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, called him out from among the pagans, and he had said to him, I will be your God. And he made with Abraham an everlasting covenant. Just listen to some of the language that God uses in Genesis 17. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant to be your God. 
and the God of your descendants after you. And then later he says concerning the descendants, I will be their God. He reaffirms that time and time again. God is saying to Abraham and to his seed, his descendants, you belong. And he seals that to them with the covenant of circumcision. Now there are a couple things about circumcision, especially as it relates to baptism, that we need to understand that are very important. First, it is, like baptism, a sign of the covenant. Sorry, I should say it was a sign of the covenant. It signified the reality of God's covenant, God's relationship with Abraham and his descendants. And it signified and sealed to Abraham and all his descendants the promises that God had made to Abraham, land and seed and blessing. So it was a sign of the covenant. Second, it was a rite of initiation into the covenant. All those eight-day-old males, by receiving circumcision, it was shown that they were included in God's covenant. Third, it's an outward, it was an outward symbol of an inner reality. An outward symbol of an inner reality. This is shown already in the time of Moses when he says that true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. The prophets repeat that. True circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Circumcision is very important for God's people. God said that anyone who's not circumcised would be cut off from his people. And yet, circumcision didn't have a power unto itself. It needed to be worked out in life. Your heart had to be circumcised. Your heart had to be committed to God's covenant and to serving Him. Fourth, the Apostle Paul teaches us that circumcision is a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. Paul says that of Abraham. A seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. But yet circumcision was given to eight-day-old children. A Baptist today would deny that would deny children the sacrament of baptism because children, they would say, don't have the faith necessary for baptism. But the children of the Old Covenant weren't denied the seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so neither should the children of the New Covenant. They're not too young. God reveals His His regenerational plan within the generations of believers. And so circumcision, though it's not equal to baptism, it functioned for the Old Covenant people of God in in a number of similar ways as baptism does for the New Covenant people of God. But of course, circumcision involved the shedding of blood. And so in that way, it pointed forward to the blood of Jesus Christ. It pointed forward to Him taking the curse of the covenant upon Himself. And Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law We read in Galatians, by becoming a curse for us. Jesus Christ shed his innocent blood and put, and so he put an end to all the ceremonial and sacramental shedding of blood that was necessary for God's people. Circumcision was fulfilled. It, it culminated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore it's not necessary for God's people. However, 
Just as the Lord Jesus Christ used the, the occasion of Passover to institute Lord's Supper, to point His people to His death and resurrection, and to build their faith in Him, so in the place of circumcision, the Lord instituted baptism, a sign and seal of the covenant, and the visible initiation into the covenant and church of God. Baptism doesn't equal circumcision. Baptism is like the new wine that would burst those old wineskins. It's better, it's deeper, it's stronger, it's more meaningful. It points them to the washing away of sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. It communicates the covenant promises obtained by Christ, given to believers and their children, to all for whom God says, you belong. And so, is it any surprise that Paul speaks the way that he does in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11? Paul there, as he writes to the Colossians, he's speaking about the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ over, over all the powers in the world and over all the philosophies and over the all, all the old religious ways of doing things. His supremacy even over the Old Testament rules and regulations. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, And you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. He goes on, In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of your sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul in this verse is not arguing that baptism replaces circumcision. I think that when our Baptist friends point that out, they're quite right. Paul isn't arguing that baptism replaces circumcision. I think that Paul simply assumes that baptism replaces circumcision in a better and fuller way as he speaks about our union with Christ. And why wouldn't Paul feel this way? Paul grew up in a world where children were included in the covenant, included in the covenant promises. He was dramatically converted and called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and he applied that same principle as he preached the gospel and saw Gentiles being brought into the covenant. He baptized believers and their households. Paul, as I'm sure every Jew in those days understood, from the generations of God's covenant working, generation after generation after generation that had preceded them, when they looked at a child of a believer, knowing the nature of their father, and the teachings of Christ, and the promise of the gospel, would look at that child and could say with absolute certainty, you belong. You belong. Do you hear that, children? You belong. You're part of God's family. You've been brought in through the work of Jesus Christ. You've been promised the Holy Spirit. You've been promised righteousness and peace and joy. You belong to Him. And so you belong here in church with us. You belong here where we worship the triune God. 
Or we meet with Him in prayer and praise and petition. You belong here where God speaks to us through His Word. You belong here where the grace of God is offered and where the Spirit of God works powerfully among His children. All these things belong to you. And you belong to God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.